know the Christmas story. At least we think we do. We could all tell some version of it. Angel is visiting Mary. Yo, shit. He died? No. Um, did he die quite? They had a cave? Maybe we don't know the whole story. Um, I don't know. They're singing hallelujah. Hallelujah! But what if we looked deeper at what really happened? The bad guy king. We thought he should be the king. They are giving baby Jesus the presents that they brought. Maybe there's more to the Christmas story. I did a good job. She did a good job. Good morning, good morning. My name is Efren Peña. I am the campus pastor here at South Hills Santa Clarita where the coffee is always fresh. You got to make it yourself, but the coffee is always fresh. The donut holes are plenty and the people are absolutely amazing, right? We are one church of uh, several campuses and we'll talk about that in just a little bit, uh, but uh, we're glad that you're here. Uh, this morning. So last week, we kicked off an incredible series uh, specifically uh, set for this time of the year, uh, one we like to call Christmas at South Hills. And um, most of us uh, know the Christmas story, uh, but stories aren't just about plot points, right? They, they, stories are not just about, and in, stories are about people. And in this incredible story of Christmas, why did God choose these people specifically? Why did God choose these exact people at this time in human history to tell such an incredible and significant story? Many of you have read the story. You know the main characters, right? If I ask, if I, yesterday we had a trivia question in our, in our dream, and, uh, and we had some questions in there that you know, some people were kind of stumped in there. But if we all got to share our story, in a, a, or if I asked you a question about the Christmas story, name me a few characters, most of you will give me the, you know, there's baby Jesus, there's Mary, there's Joseph, there's three wise guys, or, you know, white guys in it, or three kings. They're kings. That's what they're called. You know, there's some animals in there, and uh, there's some angels that float around, and that's the story that we kind of sort of know, that we kind of have pushed along with it. But how many of you know the real stories of, of why God chose these people and, and why he chose specifically to, to bring them into the story like this? And if we were to push past what God did and take a deeper look at who he did it through, right? What might we see that we didn't see there before? How might Christmas come alive for us when we breathe a new life, uh, when we breathe new life into what it was really like for those people at that moment in time? And so last week, we, we learned that God chose to bring the outsiders in. Right? We learned last week that God chose to, to bring the shepherds who were, were outcasted, shepherds who were, who were pushed to the, to the outer limits because of their, their decisions and their actions, right? And God chose to use them 
and bring them into this incredible story. In fact, God, God chose to give them first knowledge of what he was going to do of, or what was about to happen because he cared so much about outsiders. You see, Christianity is about expanding the definition of who gets to be included. It's not your personal choice of who gets to be included. Newsflash. It's not whether they, they make the best turkey, right, to be included. It's not if they make delicious desserts or they give the best gifts. The truth of the matter is Christianity is about including everyone despite their plus or minuses. And Jesus, oh God, decided, man, I'm going to bring the outsiders in because they need to hear this story. They need to be a part of it. And so when we think about Christianity, we should be seeing it from that perspective that God decided to bring the outsiders in. So why should we do anything different? So let's jump into this morning's message. Um, as always, I like to start off with a, a question, and I had someone in the 9 o'clock service come to me and said, I love it when you start with the questions because I'm a teacher, and that's what we've been taught to do. And I said, I'm married to a teacher, and that's what I've been taught to do as well. <laughs> but I asked the question to get your, your juices flowing, to get you thinking about where we're going. And, and, and the question is, have you ever... Uh, had a time where your Christmas plans did not turn out the way you expected, right? That moment where you had expectations of Christmas and you were like, man, it's going to be amazing and this and that and, 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 and even... It didn't work out the way you thought it would. Maybe it was, it was, it was the food. Maybe you, you, you put in that, that ham or, or that turkey or that roast in there and you were like, man, this is going to come out great. I did everything I needed to do. Let me go sit down and watch a little bit of TV. And all of a sudden that turkey, that ham, that roast stood there a little bit too long. And now it is dry. Or maybe it was an outfit. Maybe you were trying to figure out the best Christmas outfit and, and that didn't work out. Maybe it was, it was gifts. Maybe it was something like, man, I can't wait. I'll be transparent. This, I'm a father of four. And have you ever tried to go get that one gift? That one gift that you knew was going to make the eyes twinkle for your loved ones, your little ones? Right? Let's, let's, let's be real. I almost lost my salvation at times. Have you ever tried to go to the, that, that one gift? I think it was a, like a doll, and it did everything. You could feed it, and it pooped, and it did everything, right? And, and I was like, we got to go get this doll, right, because my kids wanted it. So the commercials were running rampant with it. And so we went out, and, and we, we got dressed apart. We were ready to, to, to go. We got comfy clothes. We were going to do that, you know, push people and, 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 and get there. And, and I, I almost lost my salvation in there. And then you couldn't get it because it got sold out, right? And so those moments where you're trying to, you feel like, man, this is going to be the best gift ever. And you failed at that. It's frustrating anytime we get our hopes up and they're kicked to the curb by circumstances that are out of our control. But this is especially true 
at Christmas time. You see, we've been conditioned to believe that Christmas is this magical time of the year where everything is supposed to work out for everyone. Nothing could absolutely go wrong in the Christmas season. This is where everything is jolly, where you can eat as much as sweets as you want to. Because there's a New Year's resolution coming up in January. And it's way worse when things seem to be going so great for everyone else but you. We can begin to wonder, man, when will, when will I catch a break? When is it going to work out in my favor? When, are, when am I going to be able to enjoy this season? There's a word for this, you know, and it's, it's called hopelessness. Hopelessness is the feeling that things are not good and the fear that they're never going to get any better. Have you been there before? Have you had that feeling that, man, life is hopeless right now? Things are not good and, and, and I'm so scared that they're never going to get any better for me. If we're honest in church this morning, think, Many of us have been there before. But what if, what if I told you that this is, this is exactly what the Christmas story is about? That, that the story that you've been reading and over and over that you know it probably by memory that you've heard and, and seen and played out on TV that, that the angel and the baby and, and that's, that's, that's the story but there's, there's, there's more to it. What if I told you that this story is about hopelessness and, and what happens. We're going to read a little bit this morning and we're actually going to, to, to get jump into a little bit of history here. And so we'll start off with Matthew chapter 2. Here in Matthew chapter 2, it starts to set the stage for the story. And it says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem. So right off the bat, we understand that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And he was born under the ruling of this king named Herod, or Herod, depending on how you want to pronounce it. At this time in history, the world was ruled by Rome and Rome by Caesar's. When Jesus was born, Augustus Caesar was in power and did something no one else had ever done. He united the entire known world under one ruler, himself. But the problem, the problem with conquering the world is how do you run uh, something so massive and so, so, so big and huge and keep things still under control? Because if you lived in Rome, how do you rule another place or another part of your empire if it takes you about nine months to get there? What do you do? You will look around and find a king in that area that, would, that you can ask him to rule the land on your behalf. You promise that you won't kill him, but you'll keep him under your thumb and he'll keep the people under his thumb. And, and in that process, you, he, will be the, he will be super rich as long as he remembers who's in charge. In the land of Israel, they found 
someone. They found a young half-Jewish warrior named Herod, or Herod. They declared him king of the Jews. Keep that in mind. They declared this half-Jewish warrior king of the Jews, Caesar's representative to the nation of Israel. In 37 BC, the armies of Herod and Mark Antony stormed Jerusalem with 11 battalions of of infantry and 6,000 cavalry. And according to uh, uh, Josephus, the troops poured in a sense of wholesale massacre ensued. Herod's army was determined to leave none of their opponents alive. Masses were butchered in the streets, crowded together in houses, with no mercy shown to infants or the old or the weak or the females. Herod saw that he said that this was God's will, but he personally massacred thousands of Jews, his own people, in order to take power. Is that really what God wanted? The first thing he did when he conquered an area was to build altars and temples and statues of Caesar and commanded the people to worship Caesar as a god. Here was this king, half-Jewish king, over the Jewish land who was brought up, who was taught not to serve any other god but God himself enshrining the very person who violently conquered them as a god. He built a three-story palace on the top of an iconic rock formation known as Masada. He installed cool and warm baths and columns made of solid marble imported from Rome. He had an artist paint frescoes on the walls. That roof where it hadn't rained in seven years On that roof, where everyone could see, he put a pool. He had his technologist design an aqueduct system to collect and distribute water to uh, that uh, to distribute water to his desert palace. He wanted to build a state-of-the-art city on the coast, but the problem was the coast was swampy and not really buildable. So he drained the marshes and brought in rock and concrete and built a new coastline and put a huge city on top and he named it Caesarea. At the time, the largest harbor in the world was 60 acres. But he builds one to be 250, I mean, 520 acres. He brought engineers from Italy that invented a new type of concrete that would harden underwater. The concrete platform stretched over 80 feet under the ocean's surface and was about 100 feet wide. He built an underground sewage system for the city that would drain with the tide. Sticks are such that if you were sitting in the back row, they said that you can hear a whisper from the stage. Then he decided that he wanted a place without exactly the halfway point between the two. His dream was to have the palace built on top of a mountain. The catch was, there was no mountain. So what does he do? He has a mountain built. 
He built this place or this palace. Uh, he called the, his palace the Heridium. It had a racetrack, gardens, luxury apartments. It housed the biggest pool he had ever built, nine feet deep with a gazebo in the middle. And the only way you can get to it was by boat. Everything that the king did was huge. He had 11 wives and 43 kids. Mm -hmm. It said that he didn't seem to love any of his wives except for one. But he got suspicious of her and he eventually killed her. Once he suspected one of his sons might be plotting against him. So he had him drowned in the family pool in front of him. He killed several of his kids because he was suspicious of them, of them trying to take over, of which there was no evidence. He was actually paranoid. At one point, he got into a disagreement with the Jewish religious leaders. They wouldn't sign off on something that he wanted to do, and he wanted to do it anyway, so he had them publicly executed. Another time, he had the most influential Jews brought to the Hippodrome, a huge stadium for chariot races, gladiator battles, stuff like that. He had the doors barricaded, the gates locked, and told the guards, when I die, slaughter every single one of them in here so that I'll be guaranteed that they'll be weeping and mourning during my time of my death because no one really likes me, but they'll cry for those people. He was known to dress in peasant clothing, go out into the marketplace and walk around and listen to people talking. And if they said something that was negative about him, he would then send their description to his soldiers and have them execute. person who ever lived, historians believe that he was the richest person who ever lived, not just during that time period, but ever. The man was loaded. Jerusalem was surrounded by big, thick walls. And it was a city. There was no farmland inside the city. The city was essentially where rich people lived. So if you were not rich, you could not live inside the city. Because this was where the king lived. And his government officials and high-level uh, military officers lived there as well. These were the people who helped him gain power and sustain that power. And he basically controlled everything. The government, the economic system, the religious establishment. If, if he didn't agree with the high priest, then guess who went bye-bye? The high priest. He did all this, he did all of this all of the time. He did it, if, if you didn't do what he wanted, then you would die as well. If you disagreed with him, you would die. There was no questions, this is it, you're dead. So you have this incredible close-knit community of people living within the city walls. People who walked with their head held high. And said, yes, king, whatever you want, king. So where did these people get their food from? They can't get it from the inside. They got the food from the outside. 
They got the food from the farmers and the fishermen and the shepherds and the vineyard people who lived outside of the city, who supported the rich who lived on the inside of the city. And interestingly enough, most of Jesus' parables were geared toward these people, the people who lived on the outside, working class peasants, using illustrations from their everyday lives. Historians estimate that the peasants were being taxed 80 to 90 percent. 80 to 90 percent. So what is the king doing with all of this money? Well, I just told you, he's building hot tubs and pools on the roof of marble palaces and stadiums to entertain the rich people. Private mountains because he can have private mountains. And here you are, you and your family are starving to death. What are you going to do about it? You live on the outside. You don't live in the city. Everything that you make, everything that you grow, everything that you're working hard for is going to the king. What are you going to do about it? You would think to yourself, man, this is, this is definitely not good. And I feel like it's not going to get any better. Wondering, is it always going to be like this? Because it feels like it's never going to change. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to magically make things different. I don't know how to change my circumstances. I don't know how to fix this one. I'm not sure how to make things right. And it's not just in my head. Anyone can look around and see that the king controls everything. And you can't question or critique him because he'll hear about it. And he's going to kill me. All of the evidence is stacked up against me. And what am I going to do about it? He is the king. And I'm stuck. And so your heart begins to give up hope. And despair begins to set in. Have you been there before? You see, despair is the deep sadness that comes from taking a sober look at the whole situation and seeing no way out. Have you been there before? Or you look at the circumstances that you find yourself today and say, man, this I don't, there's no way out of this. This is not going to help. This, there's no way I can get free from this. This is difficult. Now, I want to make a note that there's a difference between despair and hopelessness. You see, hopelessness is a suspicion. Despair is a confirmation. Hopelessness is emotional. Despair is factual. So it starts off with hopelessness. And that turns into despair. Church, this is the backdrop of the Christmas story. This is the backdrop of what took place. People that were feeling hopeless and on the verge of stepping into despair. I'm going to read you a part of scripture. Um, it's found in Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to quickly read it. And this is where the, king, the king's kingship is threatened. It says, 
Where is this newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting to the leading priest and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah? For this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, are not least among the ruling cities, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd of my people. Then Hurrah called for a private meeting with the wise men. And he learned from them the time where the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. For when you find him, come back and tell me that I can go and worship him too. Verse 9, after this interview, the wise men went their way. And the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures, chests, and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route. Because God had warned them in a dream not to return to the king. Imagine... Imagine that you are hopeless under the king's kingship, right, under his, his rule. And someone says to you, hey, have you heard? Have you heard the, the news? Have you heard the, that the new king has been born? The one true king, the promised king, the king that's finally going to fix it all? I saw him. I saw him with my own eyes. And the promise they're referring to is this. And Isaiah 9, 6 says, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I don't know about you, but I'm like, yeah, yeah, the king, the king. Some of you were sleeping on me, so I had to wake you up. But imagine your everything that you know absolutely sucks. You can't see your way out of the circumstances. Mind you, like I was born into this, I'm gonna die like this. And along comes the greatest news you were ever to hear. The new king is here. One that's going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Priests. Oh, yeah, he's coming. Church, hope was born on that day. And faith began to rise and swell up within the people. Because the new king had been born, the true king, and things were about to change. You see, Christmas is really about a tale of two kings. Herod, a symbol of despair, and Jesus, a symbol of divine possibility. You see, when Jesus jumps on the scene, Jesus brings a bag full of hope. 
He brings hope to mankind. And so regardless where people were at, regardless of what they were doing, they said, oh my gosh, the king is here. Hope is here. No longer do we have to be subjected to this way of living anymore. This is the Christmas story, friends. This is about the poor, the weak, the hurting, and the hopeless. It's about the defeated, the oppressed, and the depressed. It's the message that oppressors do not win. That when your faith is in Christ, when your faith is in Jesus, when your king is named Jesus, in those moments when the story is at its lowest point, the story is not over. Because the harads of this world don't get the last word. Jesus gets the last word. And so regardless of where you find yourself today, yeah, the bills are piled up and you got to go Christmas shopping. Yes, you don't like your boss and you're about to get fired. Yes, things are medically challenging your your body or people that you love. Yes, you're getting the the worst news ever. But I want to tell you this morning, because Jesus was born, we're no longer hopeless. We have hope. Cancer doesn't get the last word. Divorce doesn't get the last word. Hatred doesn't get the last word. Unemployment doesn't get the last word. Depression doesn't get the last word. Addiction doesn't get the last word. Even death doesn't get the last word. Who gets the last word? Jesus gets the last word. And as long as Jesus gets the last word, then you better believe I'm doing my cabbage patch dance. You better believe the Christmas story is a reminder that, gee, just because I don't see a way out doesn't mean that there is no way out. Just because you cannot see a way out of your current circumstances does not mean that you have no hope. There's this idea in the gospel story that comes up over and over and over again, that when you think it's over, it's not really over. Redemption is born from destruction. Isaiah 1, 11, uh, 11, 1 says, Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot, yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. In other words, when we think that when every, the world is piling on top of us and we feel like, man, I, I'm just on a, on a, on a hunch, going 100 miles an hour on a path to destruction, to, this, is, this is not going to end well. That God takes those moments you find yourself in need the most and he begins to do something incredible. I was reminded long ago when I felt that, that, that my life was an abandoned building, that I, I, I was worthless, that I didn't have value. And God said, oh man, do you have value? I'm not done yet with you. And he began to restore and put in things in me that I never thought it was possible to even have or even phantom of having. Out of the stump. You know what a stump is? Is when the tree has been cut and it's left to death. There's nothing there. Just enough to put your butt on it. Right? 
Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch. What? Bearing fruit from the old root. There's an interesting thing about both Caesar and, and, and King Herod. They both died. They both died and their kingdoms crumbled. And even though Jesus laid down his life so that everyone could enter his kingdom, Jesus rose again on the third day. You see, the Herods of this world, the oppressors of this world, the people holding you back, the people trying to squeeze you down, the people pushing you to the outside, they will all eventually die. But our king, our king lives forever. And his kingdom lives forever. It cannot be toppled. It cannot be defeated. And when we place our faith in Jesus, we are part of this kingdom. We are part of what God has promised us. The early Christians called this the good news. So if you ever wondered why they say the good news is because when people heard what Jesus came to do, when people heard who Jesus was, when people began to understand that he was the true king, it was good news. It was good news. So let me wrap this up this morning. This is probably my favorite part of what I get to do and share about my messages because my heart is always focused on I want you to leave here not with like, hmm, let me go home and think about this. That's cool as you get those moments and you go home and, okay, let me do research. Let me try to figure it out. But my heart is really to, my heart is that you would leave here saying, aha, I get it. I understand it now. I see it. And so this part as we wrap this up is, is where I give you some application where you get to and say, man, how do I apply this to my everyday life? How do I go live this out? And I'm going to end it with a question just like I started it. Basically, who's your king? What king are you looking to? If it's Harad, then yeah, things are, are really going to be hopeless. But if it's Jesus, there's always hope. There's always hope. I always bring it back to me because I'm not ashamed of what God has done in my life. I am a living, walking testimony that there is hope. I stand before you as a man that has been redeemed and transformed. 
And some of you are probably saying, man, I got too many issues. I got, I've done too many, too, I screwed up so many times. I can't, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't think that was good for you, but it's not going to work for me. Now, can I tell you, with Jesus, there is always hope. My wife who's sitting here never really gets to be down here because she's upstairs with the kids. She can attest to that. That there was nothing good inside of me. And I found myself in a hopeless state. But because Jesus was born, because the King of kings and Lord of lords, because he came to bring us hope, I can stand here and share about this hope. What this really means is there's a force outside of the facts in front of us working behind the scenes to save you, to save us. I don't know what you're going through in this season. I don't know if you look forward to the Christmas season, if it brings you cheer or jeers. I don't know if what you're going through right now absolutely sucks or not. But there is more to the Christmas story than just a baby born in a manger. There's more to the Christmas story than the kings bringing gifts. There's more to the Christmas story than if there was a camel, a, chef, a, 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 a cow, a horse, a pig, a chicken. More than that. Because I know some of you debated on that. There's more to the Christmas story than just coming to church. The Christmas story is about the hope that Jesus came to bring. And if he did it for the people back then, and if he did it for me, thousands and thousands and thousands of others before us and millions of before us, and he came to bring hope for you. This is the good news, church. This is why Christmas is so incredible. Because no matter where you find yourself, no matter how difficult things are going or not going for you, you can take a step back and say, Jesus was born to bring hope to my situation, to my circumstances, to my family, to my kids, to my workplace to my finances, to my sicknesses, to my emotions. Jesus came to bring hope.